scripture lesson today is taken from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 26. We're going to start reading um, at verse 4 and read through the second half of verse 10. This is one of the earliest times in the Old Testament in Israel's history um, when they effectively confess their faith. It's an interesting passage because, among other things, it shows um, how much in the consciousness of Israel their early faith was formed in gratitude for being delivered from slavery in Egypt. So 26, verse 4. When the priest takes the basket from your hand and sets it down before the altar of the Lord your God, you shall make this response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my ancestor. He went down into Egypt and lived there as an alien, few in number. And there he became a great nation, mighty and populous. When the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us by imposing hard labor on us, we cried to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, The Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with a terrifying display of power and with signs and wonders, and he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So now I bring the first fruit of the ground that you, O Lord, have given me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today's sermon is a conclusion to a series in which I've been sharing the sources and nature of my longstanding love of this book we call the Bible. In the previous sermons, I've spoken of how I fell in love with the Bible and who helped me fall in love with the Bible. But today I want to turn the camera away from my own spiritual autobiography and focus instead on those of you who sit in the pew and live and work in the world. I want to preach on how you can fall in love with the Bible. Though I rarely preach how-to sermons, I owe it to you to provide whatever tips I have picked up along the way concerning this book that is at the heart of our faith and is a continual source of beauty, wisdom, and consternation. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit. That in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. One of the most helpful statements I ever heard about the Bible was made by the late Dr. Fred Craddock several decades ago. I heard him say in an offhanded way, The Bible isn't really a book, it is a library, and he is right. 
Though the Bible is bound and sits on our bookshelves, our coffee tables, or at our bedsides, it is actually a collection of 66 books whose origins lie in stories that were told around campfires, campfires or by people huddled in desert tents in the ancient Near East and then later in house churches in the Greco-Roman world to which Paul had traveled after the death and resurrection of Christ. The stories and sayings, the poems and prayers in the Bible were repeated, were told, were passed on long before they were written, edited, translated, and collected into the Old and New Testaments. Thus, when we open this book, we are walking in to a library, which is one reason it takes us a life, an entire life, to plumb the depths of the 66 books before us. Like reading Shakespeare or Emily Dickinson, it is impossible to digest the whole of the Bible at one time. We have to start small. One passage, one psalm, one book at a time. Over a long period, perhaps a lifetime, we can eventually partake of the whole meal. But a warning from the Mater D is in order. There will be dishes and even courses that we will never fully digest. And some recipes will taste so bitter that we will immediately push our plates away and even ask them to be returned to the chef. Such is the nature of a book this long, this complex, this wise, yet still revealing and reflective of the fallen world in which we live and of God's commitment to the redemption of that world. Now, many people start out trying to read the Bible cover to cover. That is a noble goal. But I warn anyone who starts this way that some of the most challenging parts of the Scripture appear early. Maggie and I are in the process of reading aloud one chapter of the Bible a night. From about the middle of Exodus, which is only the second book, through Leviticus, which is the third book, and well into the book of Numbers, which is the fourth book, almost nothing happens. No events. No sayings. Hardly any characters. Instead, this portion of the Bible contains 613 laws, cultic practices, setting up of the sanctuary in the house of worship that grow out of the Ten Commandments. Now, while these chapters provide religious, political, and social identity to the newly people created, to the newly created people of Israel, and while they are precious and meaningful to many faithful Jews across the centuries, we Christians tend to stumble over or slumber through the specificity of detail in this part of the Bible. 
Thus, if we start out reading the Bible cover to cover and we get stalled in the legal material, which many people do, it's okay to skim and move on, though eventually we may be moved to return in depth. Another way to begin reading the Bible is with some of the wonderful short books that can be read in one sitting. Since most of us have some interest in Jesus, his story is presented four times in four different ways by four different writers in the section of the library we call the New Testament on the shelf labeled Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John live in this section. They each give us a positive portrait of Jesus, though they begin at different points in his life, and the colors and hues of their portraits vary. While we cannot go wrong by starting with any one of them, Mark is the shortest and the simplest. We can read Mark in less than two hours. And come away with a great sense of religious accomplishment that we have actually read a book of the Bible. And that may just spur us on to read Matthew and Luke and John. If we prefer a story from the Old Testament, I suggest that we begin with the book of Ruth. It is only four chapters. Ruth is a book in which every character does the right thing. There is beauty in Ruth. There is love in Ruth. There is healing in Ruth. There is loyalty in Ruth. There is faithfulness in Ruth. There is romance in Ruth. There is a hint of passion in Ruth. There is childbirth in Ruth. There is respect for tradition, law, social norms, and civility in Ruth. And behind the scenes in Ruth, there is the quiet, hidden hand of God helping work things out for the better for every character who appears in this short story. Now, if we pay attention to the shelf from which we take the book of Ruth, we will notice that it follows on the shelf the book of of Judges. Unlike Ruth, Judges is awful to read. <laughs> Although I like it. <laughs> judges is violent. The violence is often committed by God's people. Sometimes at God's command. The book of Ruth refers to this violence obliquely. When it opens by saying, in the days that the judges ruled. And then it moves on to narrate a beautiful story of one whose life was full of light and beauty. It's as if the Bible is saying, in the days when the judges ruled, there was Ruth. A welcome foil to the widespread violence of the age. And Ruth herself wasn't even part of the people of God. She was a foreigner, a Gentile, a Moabite. Yet she embodies what God would have God's own people be. 
So when we read the book of Ruth, we are reading a story in which the people of God are acknowledging that a foreigner in their midst better embodies God's will than they have embodied it in their recent history. This is quite an honest act of self-criticism on the part of the author of Ruth and of those who decided the book should be included in the scriptures. When the people of Israel tell this story, they are doing something rare for any individual, family, tribe, organization, religion, or nation. They are engaging in an act of self-reflection and even self-criticism. What a novel idea. Now, a third way to fall in love with the Bible is to cling to passages that we have picked up along the way that express the hopes and fears of all the years that are met in thee tonight. We know many of these passages by heart. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Therefore... Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the day. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor ruler nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. If you have grown up with little religious faith, You may have encountered one or two of these passages in the common language of our culture. If you've heard them all your life being in church, they have likely already left their mark on you. They have likely already become a part of who you are. In either event, they are worth reading and rereading. Recite them to yourself. Pray them. Hear again the voice of your grandmother speaking them softly as you drifted into slumber in her lap in her rocking chair. Look them up in the Bible you have. 
read them in their context, spread out a bit, and see what becomes foreign, comes before and after. Learn about them. Every passage that becomes a part of you will help the entire book become even more than a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Perhaps the most important thing you can do as a person of faith and frankly as a citizen both of this nation and of the world is to become familiar with the big picture of scripture. As I've said before in this series, the Bible is one long narrative arc that begins with creation in Genesis, moves to the fall of the human race in only its third chapter, and narrates the never-ending attempts of God to discipline, chasten, teach, fortify, strengthen, redeem and rectify the overwhelming fracture within the human creature and the created order that is the fall. This divine rectification reaches its height when God becomes flesh and dwells among us in Jesus Christ, gives his life in the supreme act of doing battle and overcoming the principalities and powers that threaten the world is raised from the dead in victory and ascends into heaven from which through the Holy Spirit, God continues to strengthen us to live toward the final glorious reign and rule that is at hand, but not yet in hand. Near us, never far away. The Bible is one long story of creation, fall, and redemption. And nearly every biblical story, nearly every biblical passage, nearly every biblical character relates to this story in some way and bears witness to it. In the passage that I read earlier today, God is instructing the people of Israel To remember that it is God who has released them from slavery. They give thanks that God has set them free and brought them into the promised land. The words that I read are among the oldest words in the Bible that show that Israel's early consciousness of God was as God, was God as liberator. The liberation of the people of Israel from slavery is the key action in the narrative arc of the Old Testament. It is a release that God enacts after the fall. The deliverance of people of Israel from slavery then becomes the model through which the New Testament writers interpret the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. God delivers us from slavery in Egypt, the people said. And God delivers us from the slavery to sin and death through Christ. It is all part of one overarching story. One overarching narrative. For years I have collected writings that resonate with my love for the books of the Old and New Testaments. 
I would like to close this series with a few words from an unlikely source, Machiavelli, the 16th century Italian philosopher who is both the theoretician of and synonymous with political ruthlessness about which we know a little bit in this town. In a letter to a friend, Machiavelli describes retiring to his library each evening to read not the scriptures, but the classics. When I first read this passage about a decade or so ago, while I knew that he was not describing any love on his part for the scriptures, it struck me as an arresting description of what falling in love with the Bible has at times been for me. When evening arrives, Machiavelli writes, I return home and go into my study. And at the threshold, I take off my everyday clothes full of mud and filth. And I put on regal and courtly garments and decorously dressed anew I enter the ancient courts of ancient people where lovingly received by them I feed myself on the food that is mine alone and for which I was born where I am not ashamed to speak with them And to ask them about reasons for their actions. And they in their humanity respond to me. And for four hours at a time, I do not feel any boredom. I forget every difficulty. I do not fear poverty. I am not terrified at death. I transfer myself to them completely. The way to fall in love with the Bible is to transfer ourselves completely unto it. Its events and people, its promises and dreams. In its characters, we will be lovingly received. With them, we can speak and ask questions. The deepest and hardest and most penetrating questions we have. And at times, we will receive a response. In doing so, whether we are decorously dressed or even still in our work clothes, we feed on the food which is ours alone the food for which we were born. Amen.